Well, hello and welcome to the second of our lockdown uh, editions of Formation for Edge Kingsland. Uh, I guess this is kind of like the in-person formation, except the conversation is all one way and uh, and there's no wine. Uh, well, not uh, you could be having wine at your end. I don't know. I might be having it at my end, perhaps. Uh, anyway, um, I hope that uh, this continues to be of interest and help to you. Uh, you might remember if you listened to the previous episode, which I would suggest that you do if you want to listen to this one, uh, that we are talking a little bit about the story of the Bible. And uh, and as sometimes happens when you end up podcasting things like this, instead of doing them live, I think this uh, series is going to spin out a little longer than I had planned. Um, so anyway, let's see how that goes. Uh, and perhaps that's not Surprising, given that we are talking about the entire story of the Bible. Uh, last time we did cover the whole Old Testament, so I guess that's a kind of a feat in itself. Um, but before we did that, what I suggested really is that healthy religion, faith, spirituality, uh, is ultimately about meaning. It's about how we understand ourselves and the world we find ourselves in, about what it means to be human, what it means to f- flourish, and and of course, from a religious or spiritual perspective as well, how God might be at the center of all of this and if so then what is this god like and therefore what is the universe really about and what is our experience really about these these are really fundamental questions for us and our, and our conversations around meaning come out of story they come out of the stories that we tell and the stories by which we understand ourselves and uh, and the bible is one such story it offers if you like a way into the conversation about uh, what life means about what God might be like, and so on. So in the first part of the story, uh, what we traditionally in in Christianity call the Old Testament, uh, and what we covered last time is that it's the story of of a particular people who emerged in the ancient Near East amidst many other uh, peoples. And uh, and there's this kind of rising and falling of empires and armies and religions and and perspectives and so on. And, And there's this particular people in the nation of Israel who who tell their story about God and their journey. And and as we discussed last time, there are many aspects in this story that are similar to other ancient Near Eastern stories. Uh, but, you know, God fights on your side and helps you defeat your enemies. Um, if you do the right thing, God will make things go well for you. And if you do the bad things, then God will make things go badly for you. You know, these, these are quite common ancient Near Eastern themes of the divine or the divines. But there are some unique aspects as well to this particular story of Israel that we mentioned. And one is that uh, God here um, begins the story in many respects on the side of the slaves and the oppressed. And and this is very unusual in the ancient world, uh, that God might be on the side of the slaves rather than on the side of the kings. Well, this this is a bit odd. Secondly, we have God who doesn't just sort of you know, soar on the clouds or, or dwell on the winds or uh, in the sea or wherever it might be, but that God is the source of life itself. Um, God is the ruach or the breath or the spirit of life in human beings and in all things. Um, you have a God who doesn't, kind of kind of connected to the, to the God on the side of the slaves and, and the oppressed, God doesn't seem to really, in a big way, endorse kings and kingdoms um, God seems a reluctant participant in the whole establishment of the, the kingdom of Israel and the empire of Israel, if you like, and, and the throne. Um, 
another kind of um, unique aspect of the story, maybe I can't remember if we mentioned this last time, I don't think we did, but in many respects they also preserve just a story of multiple failures. And um, and that's unusual because usually when you're telling your story you make yourself sound a bit better than that. And um, and there's also uh, these odd, what, what were odd at the time I guess, maybe they don't seem as odd to us now, uh, suggestions uh, of compassion and even inclusion of the other. Now, these are not uh, these things I've just mentioned here aren't the only uh, aspects of the story, but they are the ones that kind of stand out. Again, the Old Testament is a whole lot of different authors and a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different um, ways of talking about God and what it means, what God might be like, and what it means to be this kind of God's uh, people. Um. And sometimes those perspectives are contradictory. Sometimes they're having an argument, it seems, between the different authors about what God might really be like and God, what God might be wanting from us. And so the things I'm picking up on here are the things I think that stand out to us, especially as we look back on the other side of the story of Jesus, which we'll get to today. And perhaps some of these features are here in the story for us, perhaps because the story is actually written from the perspective of of, of losers, <laughs> if you like. Um, much of the Old Testament is gathered together in the form that it is, while they're in exile, having had their homeland decimated and finding themselves basically taken captive and oppressed in a foreign land. And so there's there's a different quality to, and, and a different set of insights woven into the story. Sure, there's the traditional kind of our our nation's the best and our kings are the best and we, we were supposed to be the best. There's that kind of thing in there. But there's these other threads of the story that are there, perhaps because... They're writing the story of their kind of kingdom from the perspective of people who have lost everything. And uh, and that means there is this uh, radical, uh, what some authors call a radical sensitivity to suffering um, that's that's found embedded within the Old Testament story. That, you know, if, if, if it was just your classic kind of historical tale of a nation that was really amazing and tells their own story about how awesome they were and, and blames their, their problems on everybody else, then maybe we wouldn't get such a sensitivity to to suffering, such an honest acknowledgement of failure, uh, and so on. So um, I find this very interesting, and I, th- I find it um, a part of what makes the Old Testament text so intriguing and potentially helpful to us because there's something to be gained by the fact that this perspective is told from the underside of power. Now this all sets the scene for for our part two here today, which is focused on the story of the Gospels, which I've titled Jesus and the Upside Down Kingdom. And at the end of the Old Testament, as we've said, we find a people returning from exile. So that's kind of everything's, you know, been near been near annihilation. Uh, Jerusalem's been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed, the city wall's been torn down, you know, they've been scattered and been captive and so on. And then a number of decades later, they sort of limp back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding. And uh, and that's kind of where the story finishes, really, with sort of a, a sort of a a um a weak version of a rebuild, so to speak. Um so that that's where that part of the story ends. And one of their favorite interpretations of how to make sense of that is that they're in such a mess because of their disobedience and their idolatry. Um, you know, so that kind of classic ancient Near Eastern thing that the reason the reason we were destroyed was because we didn't keep God happy enough because we weren't obedient because we started following the wrong gods and so on. 
Some of the prophets also point out uh, that what had happened was because of their own arrogance, because of their oppression of the poor and their belief that God was on their side no matter what and that nobody else's, um, nobody else had any kind of got real God on their side and they're nothing and therefore nothing too bad would ever really happen to them and they'd be fine no matter how bad they got and no matter how much they let things slide and no matter how kind of no matter how many bad choices they made their kingdom would endure because God said so and um and the prophets kind of say yeah this is maybe a part of why things slid so far downhill and some of the prophets also believed that one day somehow God would put everything right for them God would re-establish the throne of David. You know, David was their archetypal best possible hero, warrior, king. You know, he was the one who loved God, but also was real good at killing people and defeating enemies and establishing a kingdom and making everything prosperous. And so they talked about, you know, that one would come who would rule again on David's throne and, uh, and they would defeat their enemies and once again rule their own nation, you know, be prosperous, be powerful, be a light to the world and so on. So that's that's kind of where the story is is finishing in the Old Testament, and then then we get to the New Testament, of course, which we fast forward a few hundred years in the story. Yet more empires have come and gone. We've had the rise and the fall of the incredibly powerful and widespread Greek Empire, and then we have the rise of the Roman Empire. And this hoped-for kind of liberation for Israel hasn't yet come. You know, this idea that 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 someone would come and lead them to some kind of liberation or victory—it hasn't happened yet. Uh, many of them are back in their homeland, but they're still under the thumb of the empire, still paying huge taxes, getting ripped off, getting ruled by what they consider to be pagans, still suffering. Many of them are poor or enslaved and so on. And the Roman Empire is all-powerful. The emperor is known as the Caesar and is called both the Lord and the Saviour. And so for many of the religious folk uh, in in the Jewish faith who are um, paying attention to their own story, de- depending on their interpretation of it, you know, they continue to wait and prepare for the rising of the kingdom of God, you know, the kingdom of Israel, the reestablishment of David's throne, of which there will be no end, as the prophets foretold. Now, of course, they have to be careful about how they talk about this, because uh, the Roman Empire can get a bit touchy when you start talking about your, you know, your rising kingdom, uh, of which there will be no end, and you'll have a king. Uh, who rule on an everlasting throne? So you know you you've got to be you've got to be careful. <laughs> you talk about that, and some of them go off to the desert, and they are out there. They kind of learn how to fight. And some of them devote themselves to the Jewish law so wholeheartedly, so that God will be really happy with them, and maybe they'll overturn their past errors, and eventually God will bless them because they've been so good. Lots of ways of trying to make sense of their own reality, their own suffering, and how to in the end, overcome their enemies and get back to where they felt they needed or should have been. And so it's into the midst of this context that a, that a wee little peppy is born, a little a baby Jesus. And uh, and a bunch of peculiar and unusual things seem to happen around his birth. I won't get into all of that in this episode. Uh, so we have this kind of these these quite amazing sort of fantastical birth stories and then we skip most of the childhood stuff so that we can get to the sort of important adult business later on. So there's a few things I want to say about Jesus, and, and obviously uh, it's, it's always hard summarizing Jesus, so bear with me. I want to touch on some things that I really think shape the, the nature and trajectory of this story. And so Jesus comes into, onto the scene 
in this time, in this context, in the midst of the Roman Empire, a Jewish people who are hoping for some kind of liberation, hoping for the rising of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Israel, those things are kind of synonymous. And Jesus begins to preach the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming. I mean, imagine if you heard that and you were waiting for your kind of liberation, you were waiting for a new king to arise. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is near. These are the kinds of things that Jesus starts to say. And that would have been music to their ears, I'm sure. You know, it's what they've been waiting for. But there's a few there's a few buts here. His version of the kingdom of God is, is not exactly what they've been talking about, which is a bit strange, especially because he seems to be speaking with such authority and he seems to, he's doing some kind of special things. You know, he's doing some very spectacular things that make you think maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. Except when he talks, um, he talks about the kingdom of God in, in ways that they find it a bit confusing. Sometimes it's just because he's mysterious and mystical and weird. And everyone's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And then um, and then on other occasions, you know, he 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 talks about the kingdom of God just all, all it's all up the wrong way. Uh, children, for example, are at the top of the kingdom uh, for Jesus. He pulls a little child into their midst and says, if you want to become great in the kingdom, you've got to become like this little child. Well, that's, that's kind of... It's nonsense to serious people. Um, you know, he, he, he talks about compassion um, for, for the other, if you like, especially the, the one who is not like us. In fact, he even goes as far as to talk about love of enemies, and, and this is radical talk. Jesus is the first ancient character that we know of in history uh, who advocated for love of enemies as, as part of an ethical framework. But living, you know, if you go back to ancient societies and the emergence of morality and ethics, you can see across a whole bunch of ancient societies this kind of what what happen what happens when we develop morality and ethics is that we are essentially working out how to um, survive as communities, how to not destroy ourselves, how to not um, wind ourselves up into cycles of violence, but how to protect one another and, and foster some form of human flourishing. And so, you know, a part of that is the kind of love and care that you have towards your family and then to your, your wider community, the way you look after your wider community, your people, your tribe, well, that helps you to, to stay together, to survive, to flourish, to prosper, and that helps all of you. But Jesus wants to extend this further, and it's a very radical idea, which is to say, no, the love that you display for your family and the love that you share for your community by the way that you see them and live toward them, well, that love has to grow now to include even your enemies, even the people on the other side. And he's the first person we know of in human history to suggest this as a key component of some kind of moral or ethical life. It's radical stuff. So you've got enemies, you've got children, you've got the sick and unclean people who are a priority, you've got women who are supposedly down the bottom of the rungs of society who become some of his closest friends. He also includes Gentiles, not just Jews, and, and this is somewhat disconcerting. Um, then he does some interesting things, like he forgives sins even when that forgiveness isn't asked for and the person hasn't been to the temple, hasn't been cleansed by water or by the priest or by any kind of mechanism. 
he just says your sins are forgiven like he can just do that and like god can just do that <laughs> there's a there's a, one of the arguments that that goes on in the old testament in fact is about uh, what it means to be holy or what holiness looks like and and some of the old testament authors want to say holiness is about purity and to maintain purity we've got to keep out any kind of defilement so whether that's uh, you know a disabled person for example or a eunuch or um, a foreigner or whatever it might be there's all of these efforts to kind of protect purity all sorts of particular purity codes around that or some suggest in the Old Testament holiness is much better defined by love and inclusion and embrace of the other than by some of those exclusionary purity laws. And so when Jesus comes along, he much he, he sides definitively with the, with the love as holiness rather than purity as holiness. I mean, if we're going to talk about purity at all, then he wants to talk about purity of love, love for enemies, love for the least of these. And in the end... So this is the this might seem like familiar territory to some of us, but it's it's worth remembering how upside down it was for those who are hearing it, because they're waiting for the rising of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel. And what they hear is it's a very topsy turvy kind of way of talking about that. And ultimately it's not about the establishment of David's throne in the way that they had anticipated. It's actually about a complete and total deconstruction of every notion of king and kingdom that they'd ever heard. And so while Jesus speaks of a kingdom and his followers speak of him as a king, he so radically redefines both the term king and kingdom that they end up meaning something entirely different. And so whenever we use the phrase kingdom of God or Jesus is king, those terms only work really, if we allow our definitions of them to be defined by the way Jesus defines them. And they're perhaps most radically defined and emphasized in his journey towards the cross, towards his own death. Um, now, the death comes along in the story because, you know, ultimately all, all of this stuff around love and inclusion and forgiving sins and so on, this might sound very nice, but it's actually really offensive to those around Jesus. And if we're honest, I think it would be kind of offensive to many of us still because he comes into the picture and he says, all of these empires that you're building, all of this power you accumulate for yourself, all of the self-importance that you cultivate, it doesn't really matter, you know. It's, it's really not where you're most likely to find God. If you really want to find God, then you're going to find God in the midst of self-giving love. You're going to find God in the eyes of the stranger and the prisoner and the poor and the suffering God is found in the face of your neighbor and the eyes of your enemies. That's where you're really going to find God, not in your preservation of the status quo or in your securing of your own tribe or of your own protection or of your own kind of patch of land. So this kind of upside-down kingdom can be upsetting. It turns over tables, you know, it reorders things. If you want to be the greatest, Jesus says, then you must become the least. And for powerful people, whether it be in religious institutions or political or economic systems or whatever, this is actually an unpopular message. In Jesus' day, it became so unpopular that people wanted to kill him. 
And if we kill him, they thought, it'll, it'll get rid of the problem. So they managed to engineer a situation by which they can kill Jesus. And so some religious leaders, some political leaders, some Roman politicians and soldiers all sort of conspire together in this system so that Jesus ends up being executed on the cross as a criminal, as a rebel against the religious establishment and a rebel against the Roman Empire. So he's murdered. He's, it's a state execution. Jesus' life is extinguished. And he is, if you like, um, named or put up there as an enemy of God, an enemy of the people, an enemy of the state. The story is over. It's done. It's finished. Except that there's, that was dramatic pause. Did you like that dramatic pause? I hope you did. There's this... Uh, there's this peculiar next bit to the story. And the followers of Jesus claim that, that he came back, that he rose again on the other side of death. It's what we call resurrection. And we've just been, you know, we've just had Easter in the Christian calendar. And that's a, a remembrance of this story, of this death through to resurrection. Now, this whole story of death and resurrection is important. It's, it's super important to the Christian faith because of what it says about fundamental reality itself. Now, uh, what I'm going to suggest to you is that this isn't about God killing Jesus so that God can um, make up with us and decide that because he's had some blood, he can now forgive everybody and send them to heaven when they die. There's, there's much more interesting things going on here than that kind of shallow version of events. And, and this whole death and resurrection story says something about the fundamental nature of reality itself. And, and the big questions at play here are about meaning, about what our lives mean, about what is most true, about what really matters. I might even say about what is most real. So I want to say a couple of things about that before we finish. Firstly, and somehow mysteriously, uh, where we see Jesus is where we see God present. That seems to be the, the, the claim of, of some of the New Testament authors, right? That somehow... And, and, and the mystery of the divinity of Jesus is one that theologians have discussed and debated and explored for 2,000 years. And so I can't, um, I can't summarize all of that in 30 seconds for you. But um, what I perhaps can say is this, that however we understand it, whatever we understand to, to be meant by it, what the New Testament what the people who are sort of around Jesus seem to be saying, at the very least, is that in Jesus somehow we see what God is like, that we see God present to us more intensely, acutely present than we've, than we've known God or that we've seen God in other uh, ways in the human experience and this means this means a whole bunch of stuff but one of the things it means especially is that because Jesus goes through death this means that in that, that God is present to us in this death that God that the divine enters into even the experience of suffering of death of aloneness of abandonment and brings this kind of divine solidarity to us in our deepest pain. This is this is kind of a fundamental claim about presence, about reality, about meaning. It's that in our suffering, 
We are not left abandoned and alone, but somehow God enters into our abandonment with us in the death of Jesus. So that's one thing I want to say about this. Secondly, and perhaps if you're a, if you're a keen observer of human history, what you might realize is that it seems pretty clear that that the most that status and position usually plus money, plus weapons, plus armies, um, is usually the most powerful thing there is, right? That's, that's a pretty fundamental historical claim. If you want to know what's, how, how to be most powerful and to win and to get your way, status, position, weapons, armies, money, these are the things you need, and maybe some powerful friends. But this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is going on about suggests that there's an alternative way to see reality. The claim of Jesus... I think, is that the more powerful, more real, more lasting reality is that which is connected to the lifting up of the weak rather than walking over them on your way to success. The status is better given up than grasped. That violence simply begets more violence and is never the real solution. And so for Jesus, love, and especially love displayed in a self-giving way and extended to all of those people who we normally wouldn't extend it to. This is the most real of all that there is. And not just the most real, but the most powerful. And when we say that love and this kind of love is the most powerful, we are redefining power. We've, we've, we've reoriented king and kingdom, and we're going to redefine power as well. That the kind of power that Jesus is talking about is a power that does not uh, control or take up dominion over or seek to coerce or use violence whether physical violence or manipulative violence instead the the most powerful thing there is is this kind of self-giving love now again what we might say is that's all well and good except that what happens to jesus is what happens to anyone who tries to resist the system which is that he gets crushed by it he gets killed and so you could be like yeah, great thoughts, Jesus, but didn't do you much good, did they? Except that this resurrection part of the story says that the crushing is not the final word. The, the execution, the empire's stamp of authority is not the way uh, the story ends, and it's not as much of a truth claim and a reality claim as it thinks it is kind of kingdom, the kind of self-giving love that Jesus is talking about. This is the most real thing. This is the realest thing there is. If you want to talk about something that lasts, then start talking about this way of living and being in the world. This is not, as some of the Jewish leaders thought, about conquering enemies and climbing onto David's throne. It's about getting off the throne and serving one another and refusing to bow to the empires that want you to behave like them. The resurrection story becomes important to us because it's this divine affirmation of that truth. And if that's then demonstrated to be the most real, most powerful thing there is, if love, the love of God found in the giving up of life, the self-giving love wherein we give up status and power to serve one another, if this is the most real thing there is, then this offers us a deep, deep insight 
into where the real life can be found. So, that's a bunch of very intense thoughts for you. Uh, <laughs> look, I've been alone by myself in this house. Actually, not alone. I've been with a little one-year-old. And I have spent the last several weeks singing many, many renditions of Old MacDonald Had a Farm and The Wheels of the Bus Go Round and Round. And so suddenly I'm relishing this chance to talk theology. So I think I've, I've got a bit carried away, a little bit intense, but um, but that's all right. <laughs> I'm sure you're, you're, you'll, you'll offer me some compassion uh, for that. The story of the Bible is unfolding in this series, and um, I hope it's making some sense to you. In the next session of Formation, we're going to pick up and talk about where the church fits into this story of the New Testament and then what that might mean for us here and now because that's, again, the invitation. All right, so um, until we meet again online, which is not really meeting, but it is, it's a kind of an online listening, receiving, talking experience. May it bless your hearts. See you next time.